You are listening to New City Servant Podcast. We hope you're empowered and challenged as we root deep into God's word in order that we might grow in the good news of King Jesus and live as faithful citizens of his kingdom right here in our city. Let's get into the scriptures now. Helpful words from Jackie Hill Perry. Helpful. Um, We passed out five of her books last week. And are there any of you who didn't get a book but you want to read it? Raise your hand high real quick. Okay, if you got one of those books, look around and see whose hands are up. And when you finish reading it, can you give it to one of those people so they could read it? That would, that would be awesome. We are finishing this series today on origins, the beginning of identity, relationships, and sexuality. And man, it has been an intense three weeks. Uh, some of you have said, I've been uncomfortable in this series, and, and let, me, let me tell you, I have as well. It's been hard to wade through these things that are, are so heavy, and last week we ended by saying, what questions do you have as we've been three weeks in this series? And I got some amazing questions from people this week. I was just thankful that people were open and honest to ask real questions. Like, people were really curious, what does the Word of God say? Uh, what do I do in this situation? And I love that, and I appreciated it. But I got such a variety of questions on the spectrum. I got questions about contraception and singleness and same-sex attraction and domestic abuse and remarriage. And uh, each of those things is at least one sermon, if not a whole sermon series. And so what I decided to do is kind of go to some of the more pressing questions and answer a few questions deeply rather than answering 50 questions very shortly. And we're going to do that by starting off in, the, in uh, John 1. Uh, if you need a Bible, would you raise your hands and Vaughn can bring you a Bible. We're going to be on John 1, 1 through 18, page 603. And as we've looked in this origin series in Genesis 1, it starts off with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then we looked at Matthew 19 last week, and Jesus uses that phrase again, in the beginning, And today, as we look in the book of John, John starts out in the beginning, and he says, in the beginning was the word. And when he uses that word, word, he's referring to Jesus Christ, and he's talking about Jesus as the eternal creator, the source of light, God himself, full of grace and truth. And as we look at Jesus this morning, it's important to realize that Jesus has always been the eternal creator God, and yet he lived among us as a poor, single man who never married and lived in an oppressed people group. So both of those things are true about Jesus at the exact same time. In other words, Jesus knows everything about how life was created to be because he created it, and at the same time, he knows everything about the reality of the human experience because he walked through it. With that in mind, I'm going to pray, and then we'll look at John 1, and then we're going to dive into three questions. Jesus, we come to you again, and we ask that you would give us open hearts and open minds. Keep away a spirit of fear. Keep away a spirit of shame. And instead, flood us with your grace and your truth, that you might shape us to be your people in this moment in this time, in this culture, 
in this city. And all God's people said, amen. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born, not of natural descent, or of the will of God, or of the will of, or sorry, the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him and exclaimed, this was the one of whom I said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. The word of God. Normally, I like to start off with a story, but I'm just going to jump in today because I want to give time to the questions that you asked. Um, and the first question, if you can put the first question up, someone asked after going through this series, are, are people who are gay, trans, divorced, or have committed adultery, or had sex before marriage, or watch pornography, are those people looked upon differently in God's eyes? Is one worse than the other? Can you be any of the above and still be a Christian? We thought we'd start off with a super simple question. That's a joke. But in all honesty, I think it is actually kind of straightforward, and I'll, and I'll talk to you um, about why. But, you know, one of the re things is even as we read this, you can feel like a little tense about what's going to be said next. And one of the things that we have to admit is when we've talked about sexual sin in the church, we've not done a good job of talking about it removed from the shame. In other words, when people think about sexual sin and they think about the church, they don't think freedom, they think shame. And part of that is really real. The church has not always done a good job of talking about sexuality in a way that speaks of flourishing and freedom 
rather than shame. And so we, we have to admit that. And even as we talk about it, some people have never heard the church talk about sexuality without it being used as some sort of a weapon against them. And that's true and that's real. And so I, I want to concede that before we even dive into this because I really want to talk about these things in a way that's truthful and yet is pointed towards people flourishing and finding freedom. Uh, first of all, in answering this question, one of the things that we have to realize is that each sin has its unique consequences. And sexual sin is no different. It has its unique consequences. Paul writes in the book of Corinthians that the one who sins sexually sins against his own body. And that's a unique consequence of sexual sin. But as we look at our passage and what Jesus came to do, and he's the light that comes into the darkness. You know, when, when you turn out a light in a building, and you leave that building unattended for weeks or months. And then you come in and you turn the light on. You're going to find cobwebs. You're going to find dust or cracks that have happened while you've been gone. And when Jesus comes into the world as, dark, as light into darkness, something similar happens. As light would expose a building, its dust and its cobwebs and its cracks, so Jesus exposes a dark world as sinful full of sinners, as broken and not the way that God created it to be. Because Jesus is the light of salvation that God sent to save sinners. But Jesus comes into a broken world as light, bringing salvation, and he comes full of grace and full of truth. He doesn't come overflowing with grace and just a little bit of truth, nor does he come with the wooden board of truth and just a little bit of grace. Jesus comes into a sinful, dark, broken world full of both grace and full of truth to shine who he is into the darkness. And what that means for us is if you're willing to let the truth of God meet your sin, in other words, if you're willing to call sin, sin, then you're able to run to Jesus who's full of grace, who brings salvation into a sinful world to save sinners because the only people in the world are sinners who have rebelled against their creator. There's one category. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And now listen, if your sin is pornography, if your sin is sex outside of marriage, if your sin is that you had a, an affair or you've had a sexual encounter with someone as the same sex, or if your sin is a pattern of greed, if your sin is a pattern of lying, if you have repetitively lived a life of gossip or you've lived with a spirit of self-righteousness above other people, there's one category, sin. And we are sinners who need Jesus' truth and need Jesus' grace. And the good news is that Jesus came into this world to pay the full price of sin for sinners like you and like me. When he died on the cross, he came to reconcile sinners, whatever their sin might be, to a holy and righteous and just God. Sin is sin, and Jesus' blood and death on the cross pays for that sin in full. The hymn goes, not in part, but in full. Your sin, whatever it is, is nailed to the cross 
when you turn away from it and you turn to Jesus Christ. And in Jesus, you find full forgiveness for all of your sins, whatever they might be. You find new life in Christ. You put off old patterns, and God's power and grace and salvation comes into your life and changes how you live. So that any who believe, all who believe, become something new. Look at verse 12 and 13. But to, it doesn't say the people who don't sin this way, it says to all. To all who receive him, he gave them not the opportunity, not the option, but the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, the name that we sang about in worship, who were born not of natural descent or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. That is to say, they are born again. See, through Adam, we are all born as sinners. But through Jesus, we all can be born again when we turn away from our sin and we trust him for salvation. And part of trusting him is a willingness to call sin, sin. And it doesn't matter if you tell little white lies or you slept with a thousand people. Sin is sin. But Jesus came to die for sinners. Whether that sin is racism, whether that sin is self-righteousness, whether that sin is homosexuality, Jesus came to die for sinners. And sinners are the only people who become God's children through Jesus Christ. There's no special class of believers who, I wasn't really that bad of a sinner. We are all sinners who desperately need the grace of God. And when we believe, to all who believe, our deepest identity is replaced by becoming a child of God. That's either true for you or it's not true. It's not sort of true. You're not like in a second class of children of God. You are a child of God when you trust Jesus. Jesus was rejected so that you could be fully accepted. Jesus was punished for all your sin so that you could be loved as he deserved. The good news is that all sinners' greatest hope is Jesus. And Jesus is all sinners' only hope. There is no way to relate to God outside of Jesus, who pays for all our sin and makes us a beloved child. And so you are either opposed to God because you're not turning to Jesus, or you are a beloved child of God who's learning to fight against their sin, who has been fully forgiven and loved by the Father. So the bigger question is not different statuses of believers, but are you in Christ? If you're in Christ, you are a child of God. You're a child of the King. You have been fully accepted. You do not have to fight to earn acceptance. When you fall short and you sin, God is still on your side to help you battle against the things that are sinful in your life. That's what it means to be a child of God. You're no no longer trying to earn acceptance, but you live out of the acceptance that Jesus has won for you on the cross. The gospel is sinner's greatest hope, and the gospel is sinner's only hope. Question one. Let me pray. I want to pray after each question because I know it hits home. 
Lord Jesus, we, we do pray as we struggle. First of all, we struggle to recognize our sin. So help us to do that. But then secondly, as we turn to you, help us to recognize that there is no second class of Christians. There's no sin that knocks us down a notch in your eyes. We are your children, and it's out of that identity that we fight against the sin in our lives. And so we pray that you would empower each person here to recognize who they are in you and to live in a way that's pleasing. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, question two. Some say that the Bible permits homosexuality. And the Bible was wrong about slavery. So can we just agree to disagree on the issue of homosexuality? Before I get into those, because there's a lot in there, there's actually three questions in that one question. Um, the church's posture towards the gay community has often not reflected Jesus' posture towards sinners. Jesus came into a dark, broken world full of grace, full of truth. And the church has often done one or the other. And as people of Jesus, we are called to approach the gay community with grace and truth, just like Jesus approached us as sinners. And so I want to say that because the church has at times been cruel to the gay community. And cruelty is not grace and it's not truth. It's not Jesus. And though those actions have been done in the name of Jesus, they are not the actions of Jesus. And so our posture has to be one of grace and one of truth. First of all, yes, some say that the Bible now permits homosexuality as a holy form of human relationships. Some do say that, and some have been looked at the Bible and interpreted it that way. But I think we should pause before we even respond to those new translations. Because one thing that we have to realize is that for 2,000 years almost, the church, the people of God, have read the holy scriptures of God and have come to the conclusion that homosexuality is not a holy form of human relationships, but a form of human relationships that are outside of God's design. For 2,000 years. And so it's just been in the last 100 years that people have been reinterpreting the scripture. Now, history has been wrong. It has been wrong. But we should also pause and go, do we know something that the church has not known for the last 2,000 years? Because more recently, people have said, well, if you read the scripture this way, then it could permit homosexuality. And the consensus has been throughout the history of the church, throughout cultures and times, that homosexuality is not a holy form of human relationships. It's not in God's plan. And there's lots of reinterpretations of lots of passages if you really want to get into that, if you really want to like go passage by passage, then I would recommend the book, The Moral Vision of the New Testament by Richard Hayes. The Moral Vision of the New Testament by Richard Hayes. It's a scholarly book, but he will take you through all the passages and clarify how to properly interpret those passages of scripture. But I'll give you one example. If you can put up Romans 1, 26 through 27. One example Romans 1 is all about how people deny that they are God's creation. 
and they live for themselves, and they live to worship anything besides God, their creator. And one of those examples of how we as human beings don't live with God as our creator, our culture engages in same-sex relationships. And Paul's reasoning is, if you understand how God created us, that man and woman were designed anatomically to fit together in sexual union, then you have to deny that there's a creator in order to come to a point where you say, same-sex unions are okay. This is basically what we've been talking about for the past three weeks. So Romans 1, for this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. And by unnatural, it means that it's not the way God created it. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. So the, the historical interpretation has been that God created the world a certain way, and that's what's natural. But humanity and our sin and our rejection of our creator have said we're not going to live life that way, and one of the examples of that is same-sex relationships. Now, the newer interpretation of this passage says that's not what the word natural means. The newer interpretation says it's not about God's design, it's about every person's desire. And so what natural really means, this is the new interpretation, what natural really means is everyone should live according to their desire. And it's unnatural for someone who has same-sex attraction to be attracted to the opposite sex, so don't force them into a relationship. That's what the newer interpretation is saying. But if you read the context of Romans 1, in context, as you're reading the Bible, context is king of interpretation, you'll see that that's not really what it's talking about. If you read it straightforward, it's talking about same-sex relationships being outside of the design of God. And if you want to walk through those passages, I'm happy to do it with you. I would recommend Richard Hayes' book, because what the passage is clearly teaching is that natural relationships have to do with the way that God designed us as human beings, man and woman, to go together. And a rejection of him as creator is to say, I'm going to do what I want to do. Honestly, the New Testament is fairly straightforward. And even people who don't agree with the New Testament will admit that it's straightforward on its commandments. Luke Timothy Johnson is a New Testament scholar. And after studying the New Testament and its passages around homosexuality, here's what he said. The task demands intellectual honesty. This is a heavy quote, so stay with me. I have little patience with efforts to make scripture say something other than what it says through appeals to linguistic or cultural subtleties. The exegetical situation, which means the interpretation of scripture is straightforward. We know what the text says. I think it important to state clearly that we do, in fact, reject the straightforward commands of Scripture and appeal instead to another authority when we declare that same-sex unions can be holy and good. And what exactly is that authority? We appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience and the experience thousands of others have witnessed to, which tells us that to claim our own sexual orientation is in fact to accept the way in which God has created us. I'm gonna explain this. By so doing, we explicitly reject as well the premises of the scriptural statements 
condemning homosexuality, namely that it is a vice freely chosen, a symptom of the human corruption and disobedience to God's created order. So here's what Luke Timothy Johnson, a New Testament scholar, is saying. I've read the New Testament. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. The New Testament teaches that homosexuality is outside of God's design. But I reject those commands. And I'm going to appeal to something else besides the Bible. So he's saying you can't get around it. When you need the New Testament, it's clear on homosexuality. But he says he's going to reject Scripture. Now the challenge of that is once you reject Scripture on one thing, what else are you going to reject Scripture based on? You're going to, you can reject it on everything and anything. And I put that up because here's a scholar who says homosexuality is good, but he says you can't say that from the Bible. The Bible's clear. Luke Timothy Johnson. Well, if the Bible's clear, some would say, listen, maybe like him, uh, the Bible was wrong about slavery. I mean, the Bible, doesn't the Bible teach about slavery and doesn't it permit slavery? And so if it's wrong about that, how do we know it's not wrong about homosexuality? Well, to put it clearly, the Bible does not teach that slavery is okay. Slavery is different than the slavery that we've experienced in this country. It, It was a different form of slavery. It still wasn't good, but it's a different form. At the same time, the world at that time was full of slavery. And so the Bible is dealing with a cultural reality without saying it's okay. It's trying to help people navigate the fact that they are really, they're slaves and they're Christians. But 1 Timothy 1 is super clear. It's super clear about both slavery and homosexuality. Paul writes this to Timothy. He says, we know that the law is not meant for a righteous person. And what he means by that is that once someone's convicted of their sin, the law doesn't function in the same way. It still points to who God is and what is sinful. But he says, but for the lawless and rebellious for the ungodly and the sinful, for the unholy and irreverent, for those who kill their fathers and mother, for murderers, for the sexually immoral and homosexuals, for slave traders, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which was entrusted to me. Now, if you're in the room and you would say you're a homosexual, I'm not comparing you with a murderer. Please don't hear me say that. Please do not hear me say that. What I'm trying to say is that Scripture is absolutely clear on what it teaches about slavery and homosexuality, and that both are clearly outside of God's design for human relationships and his plan. That, in fact, they're right next to each other in this text. They're contrary to God's character and contrary to God's good news. And I realize that some people would just say this, Well then, the third part of that question, can we just agree to disagree about homosexuality? And the answer is you can agree to disagree on anything. I mean, this week our country got super passionate about a disagreement. People were writing opinions back and forth. We had this divided moment in our culture and at the center of everything was chicken sandwiches, Popeyes or Chick-fil-A. All right, no fights. No fights. Uh, and what the reality is, we can laugh at it. And the reason we can laugh at it is because it doesn't really matter. We can say, you want Chick-fil-A, I want Popeyes or whatever. We can agree to disagree. And the only consequence of that disagreement is that we might have a little disagreement about where we go after church. The consequences of that, of that disagreement aren't big. 
But once you say, let's agree to disagree on something in Scripture, then everything else is up for grab. You can say, let's agree to disagree that Jesus rose from the dead. Let's agree to disagree that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But not only that, agreeing to disagree doesn't take into effect the deep consequences of the disagreement. So disagreeing on chicken sandwiches is not that big of a deal. But let's say that your friend says, I'll take you to get a chicken sandwich, hop in my car. And you hop in the car with them, and as you're going, you notice that the red light is on E. You're about out of gas. And that the chicken sandwich shop is 15 miles away. And if it's 15 miles away, you look at them and you say, listen, you're almost out of gas. And they say, we can make it. And you say, no, I don't think we can. And they say, well, let's agree to disagree. The problem is there's a real-life consequence if you run out of gas. Now, it's not the end of the world because you can probably walk 10 miles if you really want that chicken sandwich, but there is a consequence. But what if the consequence is heavier than that? What if you're driving to the chicken sandwich shop and it's been raining and pouring for days and days and days and you come to a bridge and the bridge is flooded over with water and you look down on the side of the bridge and there's a car in the ditch like it's been washed over the bridge. It didn't make it across. And your friend says, we can make it. And you say, I don't think we can make it. And he says, well, we'll just agree to disagree. Here we go. You go, no, stop the car. There's real life consequences to this disagreement. And we can't just say, let's agree to disagree. And when we talk about homosexuality, we're not talking about chicken sandwiches. We're not talking about running out of gas. We're not even talking about your car or your physical life. We're talking about eternal life. We are talking about eternal life. Because as children of God who have been saved through what Jesus has done, God expects us to live in a new way by the power of the Holy Spirit where we are empowered to break sinful patterns in our life. And so when people say let's agree to disagree, they're not, they're short-sighted. They're not seeing the massive consequences of getting it wrong because God doesn't change. And if we live submitted to a sinful pattern in our life, rather than submitting to God's pattern, we will come face to face with him in the life to come. And saying let's agree to disagree takes out of the fact that you and I have to meet the living God one day. And we're not allowed to call something good that is a sin. God's power is with us to fight every sin. But we must hold on to the fact that what is sin is sin. We can't give up on the fight. We can't give up on the struggle. God will help us in the fight. God will help us in the struggle. But we can't say something is good if it doesn't match with God's character and his commands. That should cause us all, myself included, not just to take some sins seriously, but all of our sins seriously. It was so costly that Jesus had to pay for it. And if we live submitted to sin rather than fighting against it, we're meant to actually question whether we've really met Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says this, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of of God. Now, before you go out and you're like, I told a lie last week, 
and I'm not going to go to heaven. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is people who live a life pattern not repenting of their sins. People who say, I don't think stealing is that bad. I'm going to continue to do it. I'm not going to ask for Jesus' help. I'm not going to get the church's help. I'm just going to submit to that pattern in my life. The Bible rightly says you should question whether you really know Jesus. Because if Jesus lives in you, he's going to help you move from being a thief to an honest person. And it's the same with homosexuality. It's the same with sexual immorality. If we're living in patterns of unrighteousness, we're meant to go, am I really following Jesus? Who has teaching about sexual immorality? Who has teaching about generosity and greed? It's not meant to go, I messed up once last week. I don't think I'm a Christian. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, are you living your life under a pattern of rebellious sin against the one who saved you? And if you are, turn away from it. Call it sin. Ask for help from God. Ask for help from the people around you in this church because God does not change his opinions based on our understanding. He is who he is. But the gospel of God is what it is. The next verse says this. And some of you used to be like this. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That is to say, wherever you are at today, there is the possibility for hope if you turn again to Jesus and you ask for his help in coming clean. He he will wash you. He will forgive you. He will take a sinner like you and me and set you apart for his service. He will declare you righteous even though you know your life is full of sin and he will actually help you. No matter what your sin is, he will come in and he will help you not live according to your desires but according to his will. He will help you live for God and fight against your sin and though your sin is still there because the love of Jesus is present with you, your sin looks less and less attractive. And even when you do enjoy it, you hate that you enjoy it. Because the love of God and the power of God is with you. And so as we come back around to this question of homosexuality, we we would say maybe that our sexuality is how we are, but it's not necessarily who we are. Because there's something deeper than our sexuality. And that's this. We are children of God. That's our deepest identity. That cannot be changed. And that identity is so life-giving that you're willing to reinterpret your entire life based on that. That you've been radically accepted by God as a child through Jesus. I want to pray, and then we're going to wrap up with our third question. But I want to pray for you if you're wrestling, you're struggling. I love you, and I want to pray for you right now. Lord, we pray that as we live as the church in this moment, that we would have a message of radical love and radical grace and radical truth. And I pray for those in our, in our church who are wrestling with same-sex attraction, Lord. We're not here to shame anybody. We're here to walk in light. Everyone in this room needs your forgiveness. Everyone in this room needs the, the spirit to help them walk out truth. And so I pray that you would fill everyone who knows you in this room with your spirit, that you would free them just as Jackie Hill Perry said, that you would help them walk in holiness. 
In Jesus' name, amen. All right, one more question, and this will be the shortest one. And there was like several questions that all kind of fit in one category. So here's some of the questions that have popped up. If I say what the Bible teaches about homosexuality, I'll be called a bigot or unloving, even though I have loved my gay friends and family. That's one question. Here's another one. When I date people, they ditch me when they find out I won't sleep with them. Here's another one. I struggle with feeling I'm the right gender. My friends who aren't Christians accept me and say I should get reassignment surgery. I'm afraid I can't bring my struggle into my church family. And while those three questions, there's questions underneath those questions, like how do I meet the right person, and how do I say the right thing, and how do I find the right people to to help me, I, I think there's a deeper question underneath all those questions, and it's this, how do we be the church of Jesus in this moment? How do we be the church of Jesus in this moment where the church is in a radical tension with the culture? Uh, We're called to be in the world, but not of the world, and that shows up in your dating life. That shows up in the friends that you choose and even the struggles you have and how you talk about them. And and I'll be honest with you, um, living as a Christian in this moment, you will get called names. You might be called bigoted. You will definitely be called a prude. You might be called unloving. But really, let me, let, me, let me share with you, this is nothing new for the church. This is nothing new for the church. Thousands of years ago, the first Christians believed that Jesus was Lord. And what the Roman Empire was saying was, no, Caesar is Lord. And what they meant by that was Caesar, the ruler, was God. And everyone else in the nation said, you must bow before Caesar. You must submit to him as Lord. And Christians wouldn't do it. They wouldn't kneel. Because they knew that Caesar was not Lord, he was not God, Jesus was. And guess what names they got called? You Christians are unpatriotic. You're trying to divide our country. You're trying to divide our empire. They said, no, we're for Rome, but we're really for Jesus. And so we have to understand that even if we're called names, it's nothing new for Christians. We have been called things that are not true of us for thousands of years. And when we're called names, it can make us want to hide. But Jesus came into the world as light. Not a light that was hidden, but a light that shined in the darkness. And as we shine God's grace and truth, we will be opposed, just like Jesus was opposed. But what did John say? The darkness did not overcome the light. The darkness did not overcome the light. And as Jesus was full of grace and truth, so we as his people are full of grace and truth. And that means radical love and radical acceptance, but also unwavering conviction on who God is and what he commands. And what enables us to actually do that and to live out grace and truth is not letting the names that people call us affect our identity. Because there is a deeper identity that's true no matter what people call you. And it's this. You are a child of God. You are a child of God. And together, we are God's children through Jesus Christ. We are God's blended family. We've been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we're here for each other. We're here to accept one another. We're here to help each other walk with Jesus 
A family full of love and truth. A family who is not afraid of each other's struggles. Whether that struggle be gossip or greed. Whether that struggle be same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria. We are here to love each other and bring each other towards the light of Jesus no matter what society says about us. And we will always be odd to the world. The book of Peter calls us a peculiar people. We will always be odd to the world, but we will be family to each other. Because the grace and power of King Jesus is with us. We have received grace and we know the truth. Jesus is God. And we are here in this moment in our city to represent him. To reach our world, to be light in the city, to be people of grace and truth, to point people to salvation in Jesus Christ. Let me pray and we'll sing. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word and we ask that you would help us be your people in the midst of the real struggles we face with our desires, with our jobs, with our families, as we look for a spouse, Lord, every, every one of these places, we, we find ourselves just a little bit different than everybody else. But might we not shy away from the light of Jesus? We pray that you would use us in this moment in our city and that we would believe that you are continuing to work and you're doing it through us. And all God's people said, amen. 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 Would you stand with me and sing?